This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. In the spring of 1996, Antoine Kuby, a rising basketball star from the suburbs of Chicago, had a bright future with offers to play college ball as well as professional basketball abroad. One night, his friend Jeremy Bruder asked him to accompany him to a part of town that Antoine knew well for a hookup on some new tires and rims. Antoine's friend's younger brother, Kevin Jackson, asked if he could tag along and get a ride to the liquor store. While waiting for Jeremy's contact at the tire shop, Antoine received a phone call from a girlfriend. While they spoke about their plans to meet up later, Kevin Jackson and Jeremy Bruder went out of Antoine's sight and gunshots rang out. Antoine didn't know who had fired the shots, but Kevin came racing back to the car, telling him to drive. When Antoine began to drive to safety, he noticed Jeremy struggling to survive. He stopped the car, demanding answers from Kevin, and began to walk back over to the tire shop when police arrived. One would think that the field report logging the inventory of Antoine's pat-down would match the inventory of items logged when he arrived at Oak Park PD. That the officer on scene could not have possibly missed a large wad of bills alleged to belong to Jeremy Bruder. One would think. You might also believe that a teenager might not need medical attention after a night spent in the interrogation room. We'd certainly hope so. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a story from Oak Park, Illinois. Now, this is a nice suburb just outside of Chicago, but still within the limits of Cook County. And unfortunately for our guest today, this story features a lot of the hallmarks of Chicago-style wrongful conviction. Antoine Kuby had, and still has, so much athletic and intellectual talent, but the time and opportunity for him to excel at life was robbed from him. He joins us from Stateville Penitentiary. Antoine, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. 
And we appreciate you being here, even though I hate the reason why you're here in the first place. And with him today is his attorney from Riley Safer Homes at Kensilla. You might recall that firm, of course, from a previous guest, Ron Safer. Well, this is Joe Harris' first appearance, and we hope it's not the last. So, Joe, welcome to the show. Jason, thank you very much. All right, so let's start out in the usual place by getting to know Antoine a bit. Well, originally from the uh, south side, the far south side of Chicago, and Argyle Gardens Project. That's originally where my mother, Darlene Cuby's from, and her side of the family. My father, he's from the west side of Chicago. They separated not too long after my birth. My mother was able to get us out of the projects, and uh, eventually, you know, she also made sacrifices to get us to the suburbs, which was Oak Park until we uh, eventually end up moving to the further west suburbs, which was uh, Westmont. Went to school, stayed active in sports, had a lot of friends, never really got into any trouble. You know, I fell in love with the, the game of basketball. I think that's what mostly kept me out of trouble all those years. Yeah, the elephant in the room is that you were an amazing basketball player. Like, you had that thing, right? That high schools were checking you out in junior high, Colleges were scouting you out as early as your freshman year. Like, you had that kind of special talent. Yeah, I um, I was a starter on the varsity all four years. I was all-conference, all-area, all-state, all-American, got nominated to the All-American McDonald's game, scholarships to go to college. I didn't. I, I couldn't complain. I couldn't complain during those times. You know, unfortunately, you know, that opportunity got, you know, taken from me, but... During that time, it was very promising. You know, Antoine had a great mom and a solid upbringing, and he was a good kid, and he didn't have any behavioral problems at all or no criminal record. He finished his high school career in 1996 at a school called Downers Grove South, and he had his sights set on a variety of options, but the one that he was really kind of most focused on was going to the University of Illinois. He wanted to play basketball and study business and political science, so in June of 1996, Antoine Kuby had pretty much everything to look forward to. It sounds like it, and it's ironic because your mom got you out of Chicago, away from not only violent crime, but also away from the Chicago PD and their predatory practices. 1996, of course, was just three years after Marcus Wiggins' mother won a civil suit against the city when John Burge's midnight crew had beaten and electrocuted him. He was a 13-year-old child at the time but they tortured him into making a false statement incriminating himself. 1996 is also two years before that same department made its third and unfortunately their first successful attempt at framing Marcus. If you haven't heard his story, we're going to have it linked in the episode bio and I hope you'll listen to it. But what we'll see here is that Oak Park PD was still very, very capable of similar tactics, even though the relationship with Oak Park PD was a bit more cozy with the surrounding community. In fact, on that note, Antoine, you knew one of these cops before all this happened because Oak Park PD used to sometimes provide security for sporting events, including your basketball games. Yes. I don't want to necessarily say security for the game, but they would be there. Their presence was there. This one particular officer, Eddie Harris, he's been knowing me since I would say grammar school, you know, my name was, was ringing since then. And uh, he used to do security at the games. I remember him speaking to me from time to time. You know, he was a, a black officer in that town. And, you know, he, he kind of stood out amongst the rest of them. Which puts a fine point on the dynamic at play in this story, that you and Officer Harris are just two of the very few black people in this very 
homogeneous suburb. Well, Oak Park, it's a predominantly white suburb of Chicago. It is very close to the city limits. It's uh, known as a very progressive area. I mean, the entire Chicago area is, is certainly not without its racial tensions. It's obviously also true in the suburbs of Chicago. Right. And as we see all over this country, especially when you have a white victim and perceived black assailants, the ham-fisted police violence available in Chicago is ready to be deployed here as well even with Officer Harris's participation in your eventual prosecution. Now, typically on this show, if we're bringing up a previous relationship with an officer, it's usually because our guest had been arrested before, maybe by that same officer, but you had no criminal record whatsoever. So here we're talking about an officer who knows about your talents and he knew about your promising future, but he still had no qualms about letting this wrongful conviction happen. And it appears that his fluid relationship with the truth was what ultimately brought his career to an end, thankfully. But before we get to that, let's shift away from the full-grown men who are aware of you to the guys you knew in high school. And let's start with the Jacksons, Jamie and Kevin, who also grew up in Oak Park. Jamie is older than Kevin and I, but me and Jamie were closer because of things that we had in common, you know, especially when it came to, you know, basketball and girls and, you know, things of that nature. You know, we called each other cousins, you know, because we were so close. Kevin never really hung around us. You know, he was always off doing his own thing with a different crowd of people. So Kevin was only in your life by virtue of his brother, Jamie. But in a town like Oak Park, if you limit yourself to only black friends, you might not have that many friends at all. So what about Jeremy Bruder? Me and Jeremy, we were lab partners. And, uh, you know, when you're lab partners, you know, you get close, you know, you talk. Uh, every day in school. And eventually, you know, it led out of school. From time to time, you know, he would come to my house. You know, we play video games and just hang out. And this brings us to late spring 1996. You were wrapping up your senior year of high school and about to start college in the fall, play basketball somewhere. Who knows where life was going to take you? At this point, you came to own a few cars. And Jeremy Bruder had just gotten a Jeep and had taken notice of one of your cars. Right. I had a couple cars and I had a Jeep Cherokee and I had rims on mine and he wanted some rims because he had just got a Jeep. So, you know, Jeremy was always telling me about a guy that he met at the car wash where he was working at. It was a guy who was going to, you know, hook him up with some rims and tires. You know, he didn't tell me when, he didn't tell me how or who the guy was. So the conversation pertaining to the rims and tires really didn't go anywhere at that moment. Until the fateful night of June 1st, 1996, when you were with your newborn son and his mother at her place in Villa Park, Illinois. And you got a few pages. And for people who don't remember pages, that's when we used to, some people used to carry pagers because it's before cell phones again. But you got a few pages from an unfamiliar number. I called the number back and it was Jeremy. He just came up on a hookup on some rims and tires for his Jeep. And can I take him to Oak Park? At first, I said no, and he begged me to take him out there. So I said, okay. He just wanted somebody to ride with him. So you drove your girlfriend's car to meet up with Jeremy, and you drove in separate cars to this tire shop in Oak Park. It was pitch black in there. The doors was locked. So, you know, we knocked on the door. We banged on the window. No one came. So we walked around to the back, to the garage door, and we banged on the door, waited a couple minutes. He said he was early. So I was like, okay, well, since we're a little early, know we can go waste some time so i was like man we can go to my cousin's house which i was speaking of jamie which he stayed maybe about 10 minutes away in chicago 
And, uh, you know, every weekend, you know, Jamie would throw a get-together. You know, people was always at his house. Once we got there, Jeremy didn't want to go up. So he stayed down. I told him I'll be right back. And while you were upstairs, you obviously saw Jamie Jackson. And Kevin Jackson was living there at the time as well. Kevin asked me what I was doing out there. And uh, I told him, you know, I came out here to bring my friend to buy some uh, rims and tires for his Jeep. So he asked me, do you think you could take me to the liquor store? And I told him, I can probably take you once we're done. Since I'm on this side of town, I might as well hang out. So, yeah, you can ride with me. Now, all three of you headed back to the tire shop in your girlfriend's car. This is an apartment building diagonal to the back of the rim shop. So we parked facing the garage door of the rim shop. All three of us got out. We went back uh, to the front of the rim shop, knocked on the door, banged on the window, no response. So we banged on the garage door as well. So instead of us leaving, we just hung out for about maybe 10, 15 minutes or so. As we're sitting there talking and waiting, uh, my pager goes off. It was a friend of mine named Kia. I went back to the car to use the phone and give her a call. I get in the driver's seat with the door open and I can see Kevin and Jeremy walking towards Madison Street uh, to the front of the rim shop. They eventually got out of my sight. And as I'm still talking on the phone, a few seconds, a minute later, or a couple minutes later, I hear gunshots. And I'm reading an affidavit taken from Kia Banks right now, signed under penalty of perjury in 2018. She said, and I quote, Antoine and I were arguing about whether we would meet up that night, and then suddenly I heard multiple gunshots in the background. The gunshots did not sound like they were immediately next to the phone, and I did not hear anything said by anyone in connection with the gunshots, end quote. So, from the only other actual witness, to some degree, to this crime, the gunshots were in the background, away from the phone and away from Antoine. Now, what happened next? I see Kevin running towards the car, and I'm waiting on Jeremy to follow behind him, but Kevin jumps in the, the passenger seat and he says, I got that bitch, let's go. So I immediately start the car and I put it in drive. As I make a left-hand turn facing Madison Street, I ride past and I see Jeremy laying in the bushes. So once I get to Madison Street, I immediately stop on the next block. I don't keep going to Harlem to get on the expressway and try and get away. I immediately pull over on the next block, ask Kevin, like, what happened? And before he had a chance to respond, I just lost it. I don't I don't remember if I hit him or if I grabbed him or if I... I don't remember exactly what I did, but I want to say I hit him. I can't remember. I told him I'm going back to the scene. I'm going back. So we get out the car. I immediately tried to cut through someone's backyard to get straight to the alley, and the fence was locked. I went to the next entrance that I saw, and it was some big green garbage cans blocking the walkway. So I just started walking. That's when the Forest Park police initially put the spotlight on us and told us to take our hands out of our pocket and walk towards them. And the old park police came. At this point, you had no idea why Kevin did what he did. Before you even had time to work through this scenario in your head, two police departments and a bunch of EMTs had already shown up on the scene. 
And this was a congested neighborhood. There were lots of people living in the vicinity and the shots were easily heard. So there were a number of call-ins to the police department. The Oak Park police start to preserve the scene, interview witnesses, and essentially they do everything that they need to prosecute both Kevin Jackson and Antoine inside the first 12 hours. And that started with patting you down while EMTs were working on Jeremy not too far away at the tire shop. Now, importantly, they did not find a gun or a giant wad of cash on you. The initial report reflects that, but the placement of the giant wad of cash mysteriously changed later in a subsequent report. I'm sure you can guess why. But, okay, let's get back to the immediate aftermath. Did they find the gun? An officer, Romero, actually does find a gun in a garbage can. Unfortunately, he finds it in a garbage can with a towel wrap around it and also submerged in water. So, any fingerprints, DNA, etc. from the gun were no longer viable. What happened next? They put me in a car and they put him in, a, in another car. I remember them taking us back to the scene of the crime where it happened. When I got out the car, I remember the first person in voice that I heard was Officer Harris. He was like, oh, that's Antoine Cuby. That's the basketball star. And they walked me towards Jeremy as the paramedics was working on him. I guess they, they, they were trying to get him to identify me. At this point, however, Jeremy is unconscious and is not able to, to attempt to identify either Kevin or Antoine. Now, I need to point out that later on, there was a report from Officer Harris saying that Jeremy named Antoine Cuby. Now, this was touted as a dying declaration. But when the EMTs on the scene, the ones who had been on the scene, were asked to corroborate this alleged dying declaration, they did not. Interestingly, this is not from a report that Eddie Harris prepares himself. It's from a report prepared by another police officer, supposedly taken uh, from an interview that occurred at 3.30 a.m., which was after Kevin Jackson had been interviewed by the police and had claimed that he had nothing to do with this and that it was Antoine. Right. After they had figured out what the narrative of the crime would be, this alleged dying declaration made its first appearance. But Antoine's name had gone out over the dispatch. So police had Antoine's name early on, perhaps from Jeremy. However, the context of how Antoine's name came out is foggy to say the least. But no paramedic heard or saw what Officer Harris later claimed at trial. That's critical. We're going to get back to it in a bit. So back to the scene. Jeremy was unconscious, unable to make an ID. Then what? They took us on... The next block for a show up put the spotlight on us. They had, I guess, people in the area, and they did this two times. Come to find out later on that no one identified me in the two shows, but they identified Kevin both times. After that last show up, they took us to the police station, and they automatically did a gunshot residue test on me. I really didn't know what that was at the time. I know they was just swabbing my hands. Right. Why would you have known? Gunshot residue testing or GSR testing is not something on any layperson's radar in 1996. Even not to this day, I would say, but definitely not back then. Now, at the time, it was believed that the presence of the elements associated with gunfire could only mean one of three things. Either you handled a gun or ammo, fired a gun, or were, in fact, a gunshot victim. 
please check out our coverage of gunshot residue, unwrongful conviction, junk science with our host, Josh Dubin. We're going to have it linked in the bio. But what is now known is that the elements associated with gunfire can be deposited by a number of other accessible sources. Things like cigarette ash, dried urine, brake pads, not to mention GSR can also be found all over police stations and in police vehicles which means you can easily get what they call touch transfer just from being in it, sitting in the back of a squad car or something like that. So the truth is that the only probative and useful result of a GSR test is a negative one in which the subject hadn't been given an opportunity to wash their hands, which you were not. So in other words, without having been able to wash your hands, the absence of any of those elements on your hands or clothing would have and should have ruled you out completely as a potential shooter. And the gun that was used to shoot Jeremy was fired eight times. He was only hit six times, but he was, it was fired eight times. And it was a nine millimeter handgun. So they both have the gunshot residue tests administered to them. Now, Antoine says that his hands were swabbed right away, even though the police reports say that evidence wasn't collected until after, I think it was 3 a.m. Interesting that this information was recorded around the same time as Officer Harris's alleged statement about the uncorroborated dying declaration. So what were the results? Now, what's very interesting is that the police actually don't bother to have these test results analyzed right away. They actually sit on them for two and a half months. But when the, when the results come back for Antoine, they come back completely negative. So if, if, if he had this gun and he shot it eight times, they're not finding any of these particulates. And Antoine never washed his hands before he was swabbed to do the gunshot residue test. And the, the form is very specific about whether there's been washing of the hands. Because if the hands are washed, the test is invalid. But, I mean, we'll talk about this a little later, but the lawyer for Antoine, George Howard, doesn't use them in Antoine's defense at trial. So that's not part of the story. But there is another part of the story, as you suggested, because the same test was performed on Kevin Jackson. Now, the police report said that those tests weren't done until like four hours later than Antoine's, like seven in the morning. But Kevin Jackson was permitted to wash his hands twice before the test. So be before he was being fingerprinted, he washed his hands and after. So it invalidated the test entirely. So Antoine did not wash his hands. Kevin washed his hands twice. So both GSR tests came back negative. However, Antoine's was the only valid test of the two. Why in the world was Kevin allowed to wash his hands twice before, before the test? Perhaps just a mistake. Or maybe, just maybe, it was because he agreed to trade testimony against Antoine for leniency. I mean, he had everything to gain in exchange for cooperating. And don't forget, Illinois still had the death penalty at the time. So he had everything at stake. And we'll get to the interview process in a bit. But first, Antoine, what else do you remember from your booking? They put me in this real skinny room. You know, they took my clothes, all my belongings. They gave me this real thin paper suit and shoes to put on. As I was in that room and it was going through the, the inventory, an officer came in with a brown paper bag. It was a big brown paper bag. And he set it on top of the counter. And, and he said, man, this belongs to him as well. So when she opened it up and lifted it up, it was a towel, the gun, and some money inside of the bag. And he said, this belongs to him too. I don't think anyone needs this spelled out for them, but inventory should be removed from your person and logged. 
you can't just introduce new items from God knows where. There was already a field report done logging what had been found on his person. And we already mentioned that the gun and towel had been found in a trash can by Officer Romero. Now it's just given to Antoine. And the money, where the hell did that come from? Why was that not found on Antoine during the pat-down? I mean, it would be a key fact issue in a robbery case, like who has the money after the robbery? And the key police officer in all this is an Oak Park officer named Tesca. It was Tesca who personally took custody of Antoine. The first report out from the police radio is that there have been shots fired. So he knows there's a gun involved. He knows that he has one of the kids that might have been responsible for shooting the gun. So he does a full pat down in the field. He finds Antoine's wallet with his ID in it, but that's all. When they get back to the police station, he claims that they had to do another pat-down. And supposedly now he finds something brand new that he didn't find in the field. And that is a wad of bills. It's $1,104. It's 80 separate bills in a big wad. How could Officer Tesca miss a wad as big as what Antoine Kuby allegedly had in his right front pocket. Now, the right front pocket is not a place you just skim over. It's the main pocket for the majority of humans, either the right or the left front pocket. And he wasn't going to miss a wad of 80 bills. That's a big wad. That would cause a serious bulge. Not only was there no wad of cash found on him, but there was also no gun or wet towel. But now, this bag of evidence is just claimed to be Antoine's. So what else do you remember? I remember them putting me in the cell. It was, I think it was right in front of a, the entrance door because every officer or detective that came in, they stopped, they banged on the door, they called me stupid, said I blew my life away. And I don't know how, how much time had passed, they came and got me out of the room and put me inside of an interrogation room and handcuffed me behind my back as I sat in the chair. They kept asking me, you know, so what took place? And I kept telling them I just want to use the phone. I was a little sarcastic with them. You know, I, I wasn't answering their questions. I told them I didn't have anything to say to them. And every time they left out of the room, a little while later, they'll come back, not knowing that when they were going back and forth, they were talking to Kevin, and then they'll come and talk to me, and they'll say, okay, well, this is what we know took place, and this is what we know happened. And I tell them, okay, well, if you know, just let me use the phone. I don't have nothing else to say to you. They did this maybe like two or three times. So the last time when they came in, Detective Munchen and Jurgensen kind of got frustrated with me, the detectives, and they walked out. And I was still handcuffed in the chair. I was facing the door. There was a piece of paper over the, the window of the door so you couldn't see in. I remember the door cracking open. I could just see the light from the crack. And I saw a hand hit the light inside of the room. A few seconds later, the door pushed open. People like rushed in and I couldn't see their faces but I could see the, the silhouette of them coming in. I don't know if it was one or two who was behind me, who was holding my shoulder and, and arms as I sat in the chair. The other ones that came in, they were just hitting me all over my body. 
This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. I sat there with my head down for a while. My body was, it was hurting. They came in with a phone. They set it on the desk, plugged it up, and a blank piece of paper. And I remember this piece of paper saying time and signature. And it was like, okay, this is a new protocol that we use to prove that we allowed you to use the phone. We need you to sign here. And he looked at his watch and When I did it, he took the phone and he took the piece of paper and he walked out. I didn't know if he was coming back or or what. I know some time later, the state's attorney walked in and that she wanted to go over my confession with me. And I told her, I was like, I never made a confession. I didn't do that. I, I never made, I never talked to anybody. So she showed me the paper. It was typed and it had my signature. And I told her, I didn't, I didn't make this statement. And she walked out. That was the last time I saw her. So now the money and gun magically were declared to be in your possession. They've got this piece of paper that was blank when you signed it and is now being passed off as a signed confession. And of course, Kevin Jackson's cooperation was also working against you. Now, there are so many things wrong with both your alleged confession and Jackson's statement. So let's just start with what did... Kevin Jackson say? Well, he says that he's recruited by Antoine to take part in this robbery, you know, that they go off in the car together. And then because he has to separate himself from the actual pulling of the trigger, uh, he says that when they're proceeding down the alley, he lags behind because he has to urinate in some bushes. And then he doesn't see what actually happens, but he hears an, an exchange between Antoine and, and Jeremy, and then he hears the shots. And as opposed to Kevin Jackson running back to the car, it's Antoine running back to the car. And of course, when given the opportunity to essentially write Antoine's statement for him, they aligned some things from Antoine's alleged statement with Kevin's to make it seem like the two statements were corroborating one another, like the detail about Kevin allegedly stopping to pee in the bushes. Now, the police might take issue with you or Antoine saying that this alleged confession was anything but above board, but there's both no evidence that it actually is, but rather there is evidence to the contrary. There's no video, no audio recording, no stenographer, and there's not even contemporaneous notes from the police officers. And we know that abuse did occur. Right. Those who came to see him saw that he got really badly beat up by the cops. And because he was denied a phone call, the first person who did see him was not his mother or his lawyer. Mr. Mack, who was my junior high basketball coach, somehow he knew I was there. They let him visit me. He asked me, was I okay? And I told him, no. I I started crying, and I told him I was hurting. He immediately said that he was going to let my mom know because no one knew where I was at. When my mom and my aunt came 
when they saw the condition I was in, they lost it. They went off on the detectives and, and every other police officer they saw that was in the station. And they, they told him they had to leave and that if they wanted to visit me, they can visit me in the Cook County Jail. After that, I was getting transported to the county jail. It was me, Kevin, and it was another guy named Anthony Ferguson who got arrested that night for domestic violence. We were all in a paddy wagon, and I just started spitting up blood. Uh, Anthony Ferguson said, man, was that you who I heard in the other room? And I was like, yeah. He said, man, I heard everything that they've done to you. This is my name. This is my number. You know, if your lawyers want to talk to me, give them my information. And that was the last that I heard of him until years later when I was able to get an affidavit from him. And that details everything that Mr. Ferguson could hear happening to Antoine, corroborating to some degree what we've all heard here. Now, at this point, you had no idea Kevin Jackson had flipped the situation to his advantage. And this obviously took the heat off of Kevin Jackson. Kevin Jackson was tried first under a theory that he was responsible for the killings in part because he didn't stop what was going on. And he actually supposedly drove the getaway car and he was sentenced to 40 years in prison. He's now released. Did you know that Kevin was doing this to you? I didn't know this until we went to court in Maybrook, Maywood, Illinois. I thought you were tried separately. That was just a regular court date. Oh, okay. So you were both at court for your own proceedings. Was this his bench trial and just a pretrial hearing for you? Exactly. That was the pretrial. And all the bailiffs knew me. So it was one day in court and his lawyer comes in to the bullpen and it's like me, Kevin, and like two other guys and his lawyer. His lawyer is telling him, okay, when we go in there, uh, this is what's going to happen. But he was talking so low to where I really couldn't hear him. So Kevin and his lawyer went out and immediately the bailiffs came in to the bullpen. It was like, QB, he's out there saying that you did this. Like he had nothing to do with it. So I was like, no, that's not true. So Kevin came back. So I asked him, I say, I said, what just happened out there? And he says, nothing. So now it's starting to make sense. Kevin saw how upset I was getting. So he bangs on the door. And he tells the bailiff that he has to use the washroom. And the bailiff let him out. I never saw Kevin again until he came home in 2017. At which point he said he was going to give you a signed affidavit that never came to fruition. But Kevin never even testified at your trial. He didn't have to. Confession evidence, in your case, a complete fabrication, was all the state really needed. This confession turns into the centerpiece of the state's case. But there are a number of features of this so-called confession that just make it obvious that it's not a trustworthy description of what actually happened. The statement reads nothing like the way Antoine would talk or write. There were facts in the statement that are totally contradicted by the unchallenged facts. Like the statement says there were four shots and there were actually eight shots. There are four different versions. There were parts that were totally inconsistent version to version. Like whose money was involved? Jeremy's? Or is it Antoine's? Whose gun was involved? Was it Jeremy's gun? Did Antoine get the gun? When does Antoine actually supposedly take possession of the gun? Before that night? Or does he get it that night? These versions are very much inconsistent. And why? Wild contradictions and inconsistencies like these are hallmarks of false confessions. In this case, they're taking wild stabs at a plausible version of events consistent with their incentivized defendant in order to nab both young men. So Antoine didn't go to trial for almost three years. 
Part of that time, he was in the notorious Cook County Jail, and his family hired an attorney, a reputable guy at the time. George Howard, at this time, had a fairly distinguished record. He was an African-American criminal defense lawyer in Chicago. You know, he had been a speaker at a lot of the area law schools, tried a lot of cases. But here's the problem. What they don't know is that he's already clearly overburdened. Uh, he had been suspended actually in ni- 1995 and into 1996 for neglecting his cases. This is a time when there was still the death penalty in Illinois. And he, George Howard looked at Antoine's case and and he immediately told him, he, he said, look it, they say you killed a white boy in Oak Park. Uh, he doesn't think there's any way to defend Antoine, given the evidence that he is you know, aware of. And he goes, I'm here to save your life. So George Howard decides he's going to insert a, an insanity defense. And incredibly, he coaches Antoine and his family to fake mental illness. He told me how to act in front of the judge when I go see the psychiatrist and psychologist. I literally had to teach myself. Like, I had to look at other people's behavior who was mentally ill or who was insane. I mimicked them, basically, because this is what my lawyer told me that I needed to do in order to come home. I think I did it well because they ended up sending me to Elgin Mental Hospital. So it was like three times I was found unfit to stand trial. Uh, I stayed in a mental institution for uh, a few months. At least the county jail, I knew what I was dealing with as far as the violence. I knew I knew the environment, but the mental hospital, you don't know who you're dealing with. And then the medicines that they had me on at that time, Respiridol, Heldol, Thorazine, Cogentin, those are the things I, I had to deal with because I was on the impression because that's what was going to get me home. He took his lawyer's advice. He obviously was successful at it for a while, but he couldn't sustain it. And eventually the state is able to prove that this is just a sham and Antoine is forced to go to trial. This was a four-day trial. Uh, The state called 17 witnesses, lay fact witnesses, people who saw the car parked, people who saw the car pull away, the person who found the body. They have medical experts, obviously, to talk about the cause of death. And forensic people talk about the gun. The gun was actually was a stolen gun, and they couldn't get prints off the gun. They certainly didn't have any fingerprints or DNA of Antoine's. And then they also called some police supervisors and one of the detectives and the state's attorney who did the interrogations. And we've been over all the most damning evidence already. They placed the cash among Antoine's possessions. Kevin Jackson placed himself at the scene and implicated Antoine, although Kevin did not testify at Antoine's trial. There's also this fabricated confession and an alleged dying declaration. But George Howard was not fighting the state's evidence. He didn't develop anything to combat it. No defense, but the insanity defense. If I'm not mistaken, I I think he said something to the effect of open arguments. My client didn't do this, and there's no evidence to prove that he did it. But... If he did do it, then he was insane during the time. So a wishy-washy insanity plea on top of the evidence that the state did actually present, fabricated as it was. It's so crazy, right? Because the state is fabricating all their evidence and your attorney is fabricating an insanity. You weren't insane. And the jury obviously was going to see through that. But there was a lot he could have done instead of pleading insanity, including calling your middle school coach who could have corroborated that you'd been beaten 
Or he could have just pointed out all the glaring inconsistencies and contradictions between statements, not to mention the inconsistent reports about Antoine's possessions, namely the wad of cash that wasn't found in his right front pocket during the initial pat-down. And of course, the EMTs who would have refuted the officer's testimony about the dying declaration. In light of all of that, Officer Harris's testimony at trial was particularly devastating. Officer Harris says when he gets to the scene, and Jeremy is still conscious that he asks him a question, specifically, who shot you? And Harris says that Jeremy allegedly said it was Antoine Kuby. The question is, what exactly did Harris ask? We do know that Antoine's name went out over the police radio, so Antoine's name came from somewhere and probably came from Jeremy. But the question is, what question was he answering? And here's an important piece of evidence. The paramedics were there in two minutes from when they were called. So they get there very shortly, if not exactly at the time when the police show. And there are five paramedics on the scene. Not one of them corroborates Harris's story. No one other than the police officers say that Jeremy identified Antoine as his shooter. Right. We're talking about the same police department that developed an alternate slate of Antoine's personal effects that beat the shit out of him and gave him a blank piece of paper to sign, then filled it out with an alleged confession. So pretty close to zero credibility to go around here. So when your only sources are Oak Park PD or the EMTs, I'd go with the EMTs, right? They don't have a, they don't have a, a motivation to lie. And they, they, they didn't equivocate. They were sure that they hadn't heard Harris ask the question, who shot you? One thing we do know for sure is that Eddie Harris was fired by the Oak Park Police Department shortly after what happened here in in 1999, in part for lying in the course of his duties. So there's incredible doubt that Eddie Harris told the truth about what question he asked Jeremy Bruder as he lay dying. But that's the story that Eddie Harris told the jury, and George Howard didn't call a single paramedic to talk to the contrary. There's so much that he did not do. He did not develop the defense that Antoine had no motive to shoot Jeremy, that Antoine had no special need for that kind of money, had no interactions with Jeremy that was anything close to supporting the possibility that he'd shoot him. He was on the phone with his girlfriend when this happened, but George Howard doesn't develop that. No phone records. He didn't put his girlfriend on the stand. You know, that Antoine actually stopped the car, got out and went back to the scene When he knows that people have heard the shots, he knows that the police are coming and he's going right back there. You know, when George Howard doesn't do anything with the gunshot residue tests and, you know, he doesn't attack the supposed dying declaration, the claim that Antoine had the money on him after the shooting. He doesn't attack Antoine's alleged confession. He doesn't do these things. And why do any of that when your strategy was insanity? George Howard called one witness, a psychiatrist from Michigan, who came and testified that Antoine Kuby didn't have a sufficient mental state to understand what he was doing, that he essentially was insane. The problem was, or one of the problems was, that he was testifying based on Michigan standards for insanity. And the fact of the matter is they were in Illinois court and they needed to have the Illinois standards applied. So his testimony was rejected. So that's how this case went to the jury. So the state's case went completely unrebutted 
And the only defense was rejected. The only thing that George Howard did that worked was to convince the judge that because Antoine had no prior criminal history, it would be cruel to sentence him to death. So he was spared the death penalty, but uh, told that he essentially would die in prison. They gave me uh, natural life without the possibility of parole for the murder. And then they gave me 30 years for the armed robbery. I remember them saying guilty and everything else went blank, like literally quiet. And I heard one person, my mom, I, I heard my mother cry and I didn't hear anything else. I didn't hear no one else talking. It, I didn't hear anything but, but my mother. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And for a limited time, get more fun for less with the Michigan Bundle for just $49.99. Exclusive to Michigan residents only. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. leaving the county jail, going to um, Joliet, which was annexed, you know, that was the receiving. I think that was the scariest ride ever. You know, you get in, you know, they strip you and make you take the shower and, you know, throw the powder on you and put you in the IDLC uniform. I stayed in Joliet for a few days and they told me I was going to the pit. You know, that was the nickname for Menard. And, you know, that's right there on the Mississippi River, like eight hours away from home. When I got down there, it was so racist. You know, it was literally separated, you know, blacks against whites. You know, you had a lot of race riots down there. Um, You know, people literally dying on a regular. I've seen everything from murders to rape. 
I've seen people die right in front of me. I've seen people get beat over over a pack of cookies. It, it can be anything. Anything can trigger it, and anything did trigger it. You know, we hear about the conditions in our prisons every week, but no one who hasn't been there can imagine. Unfortunately, your post-conviction proceedings were and are very similar to things we hear on this show every week as well. His trial was in 1999. By 2001, his direct appeal had been denied. Antoine also pursued a, a habeas petition in federal court in 2001, but that was also quickly denied. And you'd think that making the case for ineffective assistance might not be that hard considering the defense or lack of defense that you had, but with the evidence presented, accepted as truth in this case, and knowing what we know about our appellate system, it's understandable that he was met with denials. What about his post-conviction petition? He did not file a post-conviction petition until 2006. And then it was amended later in 2009 to include actual innocence claims at one point, supported by affidavits. Right. He got a few affidavits. In 2008, one from an ex-girlfriend of Jamie Jackson, who said that Kevin was living with Jamie at the time. And when she called Jamie the day after the shooting, this would be June 2nd, 1996, that Jamie was upset that some money and shoes along with a nine millimeter pistol were missing. When she asked Jamie about Antoine's arrest, he told her that, quote, Antoine would not be in trouble because Kevin Jackson would tell the police what really happened that night, end quote. Also in 2008, a man named Robert Walker, who did time with Kevin Jackson at Danville Correctional from 2003 to 2005, also swore that Kevin had admitted to the crime multiple times over that period, in addition to saying that Antoine was not responsible for it, saying, and I quote, Kevin Jackson say that Antoine Kuby got the time for the case that he should have got, end quote. There were also affidavits from Antoine's mother and aunt who swore to his injured condition when they visited him at Oak Park PD. And then in 2010, they caught up with Anthony Ferguson, who swore to seeing Antoine before and after his night of horror and torture at the Oak Park police station. Injury free the night before, followed by spitting up blood in the paddy wagon. The state eventually made a motion to dismiss the original post-conviction petition because it was too late. Unfortunately for Antoine, the appellate court decided in 2013 that he was too late. And so they threw his case out. So in this intermediate period of time between 2013 and the present, there have been a number of different efforts, primarily by Antoine himself, to try to develop evidence of his innocence. One of those efforts was having a linguistics expert, Richard Leonard, examine the language used in the alleged confession and compare it to Antoine's known writings and speech. And the conclusion of this expert was that there was no similarity between the language that was used in the signed statement that the police used as confession and the way in which Antoine actually speaks and writes. In fact, they found that the language more accurately reflected the writing of the detective who allegedly took the statement. For example, quote, I met Jeremy at Cass Avenue and 63rd Street in Westmont at an unknown time. That is definitely cop talk. Another example was the use of the word then, as in, I then told Jeremy to move his Jeep to the end of the alley. We both then went into the building after ringing Jamie's bell. Every time the word then was used in the alleged confession, it followed the sentence's subject. Now, compared to other known writings of Antoine, he always put the word then first. For example, then I went here, then I did this, then I did that, right? 
And what's more alarming still is that the use of the word then closely resembles the writings of the detective testifying against Antoine at his trial. This report was done back in 2014. Now, in 2017, as we referred to earlier, Kevin Jackson was released. I actually talked to him over the phone, a mutual friend of ours, you know, connected us and gave me his number. I wanted him to do the right thing. I wanted him to tell people that I didn't do it. And I, I called him, you know, he was talking to me like, <laughs> like nothing happened. Like he didn't just sit there and tell him that I did this. But I, I asked him, I said, I need you to talk to my lawyers and tell them I didn't do this. I need you to be honest and tell them the truth. And he said he would. When they did try to set up meetings and appointments with him, he wouldn't show. So, uh, you know, he kept saying that he was going to give me an affidavit telling the truth, but he never followed through. So that's where I'm at now. And this happened just before Joe's firm, Riley, Safer Homes, and Cancilla picked up Antoine's case pro bono in 2018, and they have also gotten the same runaround from Kevin Jackson. But that's not to say other avenues are not being explored to solidify Antoine's claim of actual innocence. So those efforts include efforts to explore Kevin Jackson's willingness to tell the truth, what Kevin Jackson said to other people about what happened that night. Uh, Certain individuals have been identified who say that Kevin Jackson has said explicitly that Antoine was not personally involved. So more people who corroborate what Robert Walker said in 2010. Now, since 2018, both his junior high basketball coach who visited him at the police station and his ex-girlfriend, Kia Banks, have both come forward signing affidavits corroborating what Antoine and his GSR test has been saying all along, that Kevin Jackson shot Jeremy Bruder, that Antoine was completely unaware of Kevin Jackson's plans as evidenced by his behavior in the aftermath. I mean, why the hell would a guilty person return to the scene to essentially turn himself in? You know, why would a bright, super talented high school basketball star with college offers all over America and no history of criminal behavior, no history of violent behavior, shoot one of his best friends eight times for $1,100. Oh, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure this out. So is there anything that our audience can do to help? If anybody who's listening to this podcast has any information that they think might be valuable to us in terms of what it is that we're trying to do for Antoine, then I would sincerely ask that they contact our office. My name is Joe O'Hara. And the firm is Riley, Safer, Holmes, and Cancilla. We'll have action steps linked in the bio, including a change.org petition asking for relief in his case. And that brings us to the best part of the show. Let's face it. It's my favorite part. And it's called Closing Arguments. And this is the part where I thank each of you, both of you, for joining us today and courageously sharing, Antoine, your story Um, And now I'm just going to turn my mic off, leave my headphones on and kick back in my chair to listen to your closing thoughts. Let's start with Joe and finish up with Antoine. You know, the criminal justice system has failed Antoine horribly. You always have to come back to that question, which is why would a bright kid, a super talented athlete like Antoine Kuby with no history, no history at all of criminal behavior, 
violent behavior. Why would he do something like this? The state's case against Antoine had big holes from the beginning, and, and they knew it because there was no good motive. He wasn't a kid from the streets who had done anything like this before. And they didn't have any witness except for somebody who was involved and a very biased witness, Kevin Jackson. And they didn't have any forensic evidence or physical evidence of any kind. You know, they didn't have any gun evidence or blood evidence or fingerprint evidence or DNA evidence. Or the, the only test that they did, the GSR, was, was negative. So the state had to do something, and they filled the holes in the case with the evidence that was manufactured by the police. And that was essentially the supposed dying identification of Antoine by Jeremy, the possession of the robbery money that was planted on, on Antoine, and then the, the alleged confession. And all of this was exacerbated by the fact that George Howard decided to rely only on an insanity defense to try to uh, save Antoine from the death penalty. So, I mean, where we find ourselves is Antoine has endured over, you know, over 25 years at this point of incarceration as a result of these failures of the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, and particularly in Cook County, uh, situations like Antoine's are not unusual. Uh, and it is very important for the public to support the efforts of those in public service, including the, the people who run this wrongful conviction podcast, they need your support. They need your encouragement to continue to identify and rectify some of the horrible things that have resulted because the system doesn't work the right way. I want to first thank you for allowing me this opportunity to speak the truth. A lot of people didn't know about a lot of these things that took place during my arrest before and after. And uh, I'm glad you gave me this platform to do so. I just ask that, you know, people not make assumptions. Just use the black and white evidence in front of you. And I just hope that in the near future that I'll be home because I miss being a father. I missed out being a grandfather and, you know, being a son. Uh, all that was taken away from me including my potential future. You know, who knows what could have came of it. But I am grateful and uh, I'm going to continue to fight. And I just want to thank you. So I know my time is uh, wrapping up now. So um, I just want to thank everybody for being an advocate for me and supporting me. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, We've summoned something from this board. This 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.